Good morning. Shane uh, asked me if I would preach so he could have some extra time to work on his next series. And I thought, I can be more helpful than that. I'll introduce his next the- uh, series on the great genealogies of the Bible. Genealogies, begats, don't go away yet. And of course, since I'm going to introduce it, I'll pick the best one, the one in Matthew chapter 1. I'm teasing about the series, I think. (laughs) Although, if anybody could make them sound interesting, I'm sure it would be Shane. But I am serious about taking a look at Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Christ that's found there. So, let me begin this morning. Oh, we've got this problem. See if we can quiet that down. All right. How many of you have ever gotten into genealogy and looked up your family tree? Okay. Did you find anything interesting? I mean, sometimes you do that and you find great heroes. Um, I know of one family who did that and they ended up finding out they were somehow related to the great Puritan preacher um, and sinners in a... John Edwards, thank you. Mind is a terrible thing to waste when it goes away. You probably heard about the man who was so proud of his heritage that he was talking to his neighbor and he said, you know, I'm so blessed with all these ancestors. Our furniture goes back to Louis the 14th. And his neighbor was just a simple man. And he said, I know it's tough. Ours goes back to Sears the 15th. But sometimes when you look up your family tree, you find some pretty ugly stuff. Horse thieves and bandits and maybe it turns out you're related to John Wilkes Booth or something, you know. There was a lady looking up her family tree and she found a picture of this ancestor on a gallows out west ready to be hanged. And on the back it said this guy's name was Remus. He was a horse thief sent to the Montana Territorial Prison in 1883. He escaped in 1887, robbed the Montana Flyer train six times. He was eventually caught by Pinkerton detectives, convicted, and hanged in 1889. How are you going to put that in your family genealogy? I mean, not a real positive thing. Didn't know a lot else about him, but she did a little more research and found out he might be related to her congressman. (laughs) You're way ahead of me. (laughs) So she wrote to the congressman and said, this is all I got. Do you know anything about this guy? Is there anything more positive? Well, congressmen have people who make a living making things positive. So this is what she got back. Her relative Remus was a famous cowboy in the Montana Territory. His business empire grew to include acquisition of valuable equestrian assets and intimate dealings with the Montana Railroad. (laughs) Beginning in 1883, he devoted several years of his life to government service, (laughs) finally taking leave to resume his dealings with the railroad. In 1887, he was a key player in a vital investigation run by the renowned Pinkerton Detective Agency. In 1889, Remus passed away during an important civic function 
held in his honor when the platform upon which he was standing collapsed. <laughs> There's always a way to make things positive. <laughs> well, even if you don't want to research your own family tree, there's plenty in the Bible that you can work with. And about now you're rolling your eyes and saying, why on earth would I want to do that? I mean, most of us, when we come to the begats, we either skip them or we struggle through a bunch of names that we don't know and can't pronounce. Well, I want to suggest to you that there are some really important things in uh, Matthew's uh, genealogy of Christ. And I want to take some time. We really need to look at some of the background material to help us understand it. And then I want to see if we can't get some life lessons from it. Now, let's talk about genealogies in general first. And in the interest of truth in advertising, I have to tell you that uh, many of you know I've had a practice of reading through the Bible every year, and I've been doing it for 20 years or more. But I have to tell you that genealogies are still not my favorite part. Okay? Like you, they're filled with names that I don't always recognize. Although after 20 years, I can tell you the names begin to come together a little better. And some of them you begin to say, oh, well, that's uh, make connections. But I still can't pronounce most of them. But when I hit those lists, you know what I think? I think, you know, I don't know this guy from Adam. But God does. And they're filled with names that God knows and cares about. In another hundred years, aren't very many people will know my name. But God knew it, and he still cares about it. So that kind of helps me a little bit with the, the idea of genealogies. Uh, Phil and Marg Muir, by the way, you are here this morning. I wasn't sure which service you'd be in. They have a great story about Matthew's genealogy. And I was going to tell it, but I... It turns out it's really hard to put several hundred years in 25 minutes, and I'm not sure I'm successful. But look up Phil and Marg afterwards. A man actually came to Christ because of this genealogy. So that's a good story. You need it. Now, the other thing you need to know, or one of the other things, is that we view genealogies differently than people did in Matthew's time. For us, a genealogy is kind of a curiosity thing. We're anxious to know who was in our family tree, at least until we find out. And it's sometimes it's, it's something we do after our kids have grown and we've got some extra time. And it really isn't anything that, that determines our career or anything like that. That's not at all the way it was for Jewish people. For Jewish people, this was an identity document. Much like we'd use a birth certificate or a passport, it allowed them to claim who they were. It affected their property rights. You remember back in the book of Ezra when they were heading back from captivity in Babylon back to Israel again, there were a group of men who were not allowed to serve as priests because they didn't have a genealogy and they couldn't prove who they were. So these were very important things to them. You also need to know that people in that time viewed people differently than we do. I mean, we live in a community with multiple ethnicities. We, we're accustomed to having women in important places. I heard this week that uh, on a national scale, they think about a third of all the physicians and attorneys are women now. And we're used to that. We think nothing of it. But in Jewish culture of Matthew's time, that isn't the way it was. 
One of the commentators reports one of the rabbis of the time used to instruct his listeners to pray like this. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Apparently he had a fairly small universe for the Lord to be. Now, there are some particular features of this particular genealogy that we need to address, too. Matthew's going to present Jesus as king. So, of course, he's got to have the proper documentation. But because of that, when you start reading it, you read a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, Abraham lived before David, right? Ah, but you see, the purpose is to show that Christ is a son of David. Because in order to be king and Messiah, he had to be David's son. And then you need to know this, this genealogy is somewhat abridged. Um, if you go back in Kings and Chronicles, you'll find that not all of the, the names are in here. Most of them are. And that probably was done because down in verse 17, it says there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. So they may have abridged it, among other reasons, simply to make it easier to memorize. And of course, the big thing is, there are women in this genealogy. And that is just, I mean, you you heard me read that prayer. Uh, Women weren't valued all that well. And in our culture, we don't pick up on that. If you happen to have a new English translation or the message paraphrase and you read that, you'll begin to get a little of it because except for Mary, when they refer to the women, they they just put it in parentheses like, well, this is kind of addition. Well, I think it'd be interesting to go look at those additions, don't you? That's what makes this unique, so we're going to look at the women. Let's start in. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, don't snore yet. Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Some of us have been in Sunday school and church since we were knee-high to the proverbial grasshopper. Some of us came to faith later in life. So most of us are familiar with the more familiar Bible stories, but I'm guessing this is one you might not be familiar with. And when I tell it to you, you'll understand why. If you go back to Genesis 38, you can read all the sordid details. Uh, Judah was one of the sons of Israel, one of the 12 tribes. He had a wife. He had three sons by that wife. For his oldest son, he took Tamar to be his oldest son's wife. His oldest son was a wicked man, and so the Lord took his life. And Tamar was left without children. Now, we don't think of that in our culture as such a big thing, but in that day, your children were your social security and your 401k. If you were a single woman without children, you didn't have much means of support. So they had a law and a system in their culture that when that happened, the next older brother would marry that wife and raise up a son for his older brother so the property rights would continue to go on. So Tamar was given to the second son, but he refused to father a child with her. 
So the Lord took his life. Now, apparently the third son was a little younger because Judah said, uh, listen, why, why don't you go back and live as a widow with your father? And, and when the other boy is old enough, we'll, we'll come get you. That's what he said. But there's good evidence that what he thought was, I've lost two to this woman. I'm not going for three. So Tamar went back to live with her father. And Judah conveniently neglected to call her. After a while, Judah's wife died. And after the period of mourning had ended, he took a business trip up where near Tamar lived. Tamar heard he was coming. She disguised herself, sat by the road. Judah mistook her for a prostitute. And he offered her a goat for her services. Of course, he didn't have the goat with him. So she said, what will you give me in the meantime? Well, I'll give you my seal and my staff. She became pregnant. She, of course, took off her disguise afterwards. When they tried to pay her the goat, they couldn't find her. When Judah found out she was pregnant, he was furious. He wanted the death penalty, which was what the law said if you were unfaithful. So as they were leading her out, she said, um, I'm pregnant by the man who had this seal and this staff. See if Judah knows who they are. Ooh. Needless to say, she didn't die. And she had twins. And Perez is the oldest of the twins. Now, honestly, if you were writing your genealogy, would you put that in there? I mean, wouldn't you dress him up a little with a congressional makeover and maybe leave out some of those sordid... Why would you call people's attention to it? I mean, you don't have to put the women in there at all. There's the first woman. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now you remember Rahab, don't you? But not from here. You remember Rahab from Jericho. She's the one who hid the spies while the children of Israel were getting ready to march around the city and take it. And she hid the spies in exchange for safety for her family and herself. So she's honored in Jewish history for that. She's mentioned for her faith. But frankly, this is the only place I can find where we know anything about the fact she might have been married or had children. And most of the time when she's referred to, she's referred to as Rahab the prostitute. Now, sometimes we try to do a little congressional makeover and say, well, she was really an innkeeper. But if you look at all those references, I suspect her bed and breakfast was offering more than blankets and bagels, frankly. So again, why would you put her? I mean, she's honored, but why bring that memory up for people? And then in the same verse, we get to the next one. Uh, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, Ruth, you probably remember, too. There's a whole book devoted to her. She was a wonderful young woman. She was a young widow who befriended her widowed mother-in-law. And she did great things for her. We greatly admire her. But there's one problem. 
Remember the rabbi's prayer? Lord, thank you you didn't make me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. Well, Ruth is not only a woman, she's a Gentile. And not just a Gentile, she's from Moab. Moab, in Jewish thinking, was among the worst possible Gentiles. They treated Israel unkindly. And if you go back in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 23, 3, this happens to be the ESV version. The Lord said, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And yet here she is. And again I ask. It's a genealogy. You don't have to mention women at all. Why would you bring them up? Why would you bring up these women? But like a late night infomercial, wait, there's more. (laughs) Keep reading. Uh, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, we know that's Bathsheba, right? But she doesn't even get her name mentioned. How would you like your note in history to be noted not by your name, but your worst mistake? You can go back in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 and read the story. It's a story of lust and adultery and deceit and murder. But then when you get to chapter 12, it's a story of confession and forgiveness and restoration. Don't read just one chapter. Read them both. Now, I know this story turns out well in the end. But to be perfectly honest, if I was writing this, I think I'd have just said Solomon was David's son and let it go at that. Why bring it all up? And of course, the final one is Mary. Uh, I'll save you my attempt to pronounce all those names. Uh, Let's pick up, well, verse 12 would be the last 14. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, don't go to sleep on me, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called the Christ. Now, obviously, this is where the whole thing is headed from the beginning. But did you catch this is really Joseph's genealogy? Why is that? Well, it turns out that even though Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, he's regarded as the legal father of Jesus. So by the way, if you were or are raised by a father who is not your biological father, 
You're in pretty good company. Do you ever think of Jesus being adopted? Kind of puts it in a new light. Now, again, we've, we've got to do a little background history here. In our day and age, marriage is a big romantic thing. I'm teaching a college and career class, and so now we go to weddings. That's good. I like weddings. But couples go to these elaborate arrangements for their engagement. They go to a special place in a special time, maybe have some friends with them. It wasn't like that in Joseph and Mary's time. I don't mean to burst your bubble, but it was probably more like buying a car. It was a contractual arrangement. And young girls, as soon as they were able to conceive children, were put under contract to a man to be married. Usually, there would be some sort of a formal contract, and after that, they were regarded as husband and wife, but they didn't live together. There was no sexual relationship. And during that year, one of the reasons for it was to prove the purity of the bride. But alas, Mary appeared to fail the test. This is how we know Joseph really did love Mary. Let me find it. Well, let's start in 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary's pledged to be married to Joseph. Joseph, that's not what I'm looking for. Verse 20. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. No, I must have skipped it. Someplace there, it says, even though I can't see it at the moment. 19. Thank you, chick. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace he had in mind to divorce her privately. And he was a man who went by the law. Now, the law said if you were unfaithful, you could be put to death. But that wasn't practiced anymore. But you could have a public ceremony with great public humiliation. I mean, if it's just a contract. But I think Joseph really cared about Mary. And so he refused to do that. He was going to simply make it a quiet, private thing and dissolve the contract. And then, of course, the uh, angel explained to him that Mary's pregnancy was not the result of her unfaithfulness. God was really the father of the child. And he told Joseph to go ahead and marry her and name the baby. That was the father's responsibility in that culture. Now think about that a minute. Can you imagine the faith it took for Joseph to do that? I mean, you're in a culture where this woman has clearly sinned as far as they're concerned. You could throw her out. And yet he takes her in. And we're pretty sure not everybody believed the story about the miracle child or understood. Because even after Jesus was an adult... In John chapter 8, he's in a spirited discussion with some Jewish people about who their father really is. And finally, as the last straw, the Jewish people say, well, we are not illegitimate children. 
They didn't forget. Okay, what can we learn from all of this? Why would we worry about this genealogy that we usually skip and just go to the last part? Well, I got three things I think we can learn from that. The first is God calls and restores all kinds of people. The Jewish people were God's chosen people. And they interpreted that to mean that God was exclusively theirs. That's why you get this prayer about, thank you, I'm not a Gentile. Matthew's genealogy tells us God does care about Gentiles. There's a good possibility not only Ruth, but several of the others were Gentiles. And then it occurred to me, God told Joseph that Jesus was going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we know that he was the God-man. He was man. He was God. He came to experience life as a man. Now, when you go through this list, we've looked at the women, but if you look at the men, there's some good guys in there. Hezekiah was a great king. His son Manasseh was a horrible king. But in reality, if you go read the record in both First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you'll find that most of these men had good times and they had bad times. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? He came to be with us. And if he had the kind of pristine genealogy I would have written, I'm not so sure he'd be one of us. Because we have all sorts of things in our family tree that we really kind of sweep under, and he was a famous cowboy, and he was key in the investigation by the Pinkerton. You know, we do that all the time. But he was one of us. And God calls and restores all kinds of people. Now, you might get the impression from that and from some of these incidents that God doesn't worry about sin that much. That would be a wrong impression. If you go read the story of David and Bathsheba, they paid a terrible price for their sin. Their first son, life, was taken, their love child. But then God restored them after they had confessed. And the next son was King Solomon and one of the wisest men who ever lived. Second lesson. God orchestrates the events of history to bring about his plan. This whole thing starts with Abraham and I think you could argue it starts before that. Maybe with the crunching of the apple. Uh, and by the way, for the mirror's sake, the problem wasn't the apple in the tree. It was the pear on the ground. But that's another story. And it was God's plan all along to bring this down to the birth of Christ. And he is orchestrating events throughout this whole period of history to bring about his plan. Now, there were times in that history when there were evil kings and evil times. 
And I'm sure there were people who thought, where are you, God? But he was still at work. I've got news for you. He's still at work. He's still orchestrating events. And he's going to keep on orchestrating events until Christ returns to reign. But you know what's the problem? We live in a very self-centered culture, and it's all about me. I invest in things that make me happy. And I am so focused on me that I may not see what God's doing at all. But trust me, he is at work. And then, you need to know that God allows us to actively participate in his plan as we obey him. I see that in Joseph. The angel came and said, this baby is going to be the son of God. You are going to have the privilege of being the earthly father and raising him. That's pretty active participation in God's plan. But it hinged on his obedience to the angel's command. It hinged on him saying, yes, I'm willing to marry Mary. So what's God got for you to do? His plan is still going. And in fact, if you read not only this chapter, but the next chapter, you'll begin to find really frequent use of words like fulfill and fulfilled. And you discover that God's been doing stuff for years, hundreds of years before this. And his plan is at work and he wants to involve us. But it depends on our obedience. I challenge you to take the next step. This morning we're going to have prayer helpers down here in a few minutes. And maybe you need to come. Maybe your next step is to just accept Christ not only as the babe in the manger, but the Savior. Maybe your next step is to do something you know he's been telling you to do. Maybe your next step is to come and ask people to pray with you to seek out what the next step is. But I challenge you to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for even genealogies that we usually pan over. Thank you for teaching us that you are faithful and you are active and you are at work in our lives. I pray you'll be free to work this morning in each of our minds and hearts and lives. Help us not simply to hear but to obey, to seek out your plan and actively participate in what you have for us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.